Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. And grant us your Holy Spirit to illumine to us the word of God, that we would be molded, shaped, changed, granted repentance, granted joy, granted faith in Jesus. Father, thank you that the welcome of your crucifixion and resurrection is for anybody and everybody. Meet us wherever we are this morning. Father, we pray with the good news of the risen Son to the glory of God the Father. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You can be seated. story from my first church when I was a younger pastor living in West Philadelphia. There's a guy named Daniel. And Daniel started coming to our church. He was a little bit, well, I was going to say a little bit older, but that's a relative term. He was in his late 50s or early 60s, single guy, and hooked into our church. We really loved him. I think he loved, or I know that he loved us, and it was a great community feel around this guy named Daniel, longtime resident of West Philadelphia. About a year after he started coming, suddenly he died. And he wasn't in great health, but then on the other hand, it was a sudden death. I found out about it when a phone number that I didn't recognize called me, and it was Daniel's sister, whom I'd never met. And she introduced herself, hi, I'm Daniel's sister. I have some very, very sad news to share with you. Daniel passed away, and we, the family, knew, Jim, that you were his pastor, that he was at your church, and they asked me to do the funeral, which I was honored to do. Actually, a couple times recently, I've shared some of those funeral stories with you. It was a wild funeral, but really good in a lot of ways. And so I did the funeral, and whether in that phone call or at the funeral itself, the funeral was in a section of North Philly, multiple family members came up to me and said, Jim, we are so happy that before he died, Daniel came back to Jesus, that he believed in Jesus again, knew his Lord, and we are so thankful for your church. Multiple relatives said that. But the issue for me was that I wasn't so sure. From the funeral, let me rewind and then fast forward. Rewinding. A few months before Daniel unexpectedly passed away, when he had been at church for a few months, he said, Jim, I'd love to join the church. I said, that's great. We didn't have an in-covenant class, a new members class at that time. I just would talk to people individually and the content of that conversation is pretty similar to what we do at Liberty Collingswood. And to join the church, we ask people to give basic assent to the Apostles' Creed, that, that core 
historic teaching of the church and then give basic Christian obedience. So I asked Daniel, hey Daniel, could you meet and this is what we'll go over. And in that conversation, we went through the couple of different parts and the basic Christian obedience with Daniel was fine. I said, Daniel, hey, are you willing to be a regular productive part of our church when you're sinned against? Are you willing to forgive? He was a single guy. So I said, Daniel, are, are you living, willing to live in chastity outside of marriage and so on? Are you willing to be generous with your finances? Yes, 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 yes. But there were a couple of issues related to the Apostles' Creed, which I wouldn't have, ex wouldn't have expected in his case, but it is what it is. People are endlessly surprising for, for, for me as a pastor. So, yeah, Jim, I do have a couple things that I want to ask you about the Apostles' Creed. Great. And we said it every, day, every Sunday at church, like we do now. He said, okay, this is what I think about Jesus. Can we talk about the Jesus part? I'm like, yeah, I'd love to talk about the Jesus part. So I believe that Jesus was a God, but not God, God. I believe that Jesus was a God, but not the God. They said, well, that's interesting. Tell, tell me more about it. And one of the verses that I referenced in that conversation was Colossians 1, 19, which is from our sermon text here this morning. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. They said, Daniel, my read of the history of the church is that what you're saying, Jesus had divinity in him, but wasn't God himself there are people outside of the church or exited from the church because of that belief because it was considered and is considered a sub-Christian view of who Jesus is. And he said, well, Jesus is still important to me. Jesus shows me what a life full of God can look like, and I aspire to be like Jesus in that way. And we sort of went back and forth, but I said, yeah, but, but that's not what the church confesses. And he, he seemed to understand that there was a difference between his set of views and my set of views. And he said explicitly, yeah, I like Jesus a lot. I'm never going to worship him. That's, that, that's not what people are supposed to do. And then my pastoral antenna were up a little bit at this point. I was so happy to have the conversation with him. I said, well, what do you think about the cross? What do you think about Jesus crucified and resurrected? And he said, love the cross because the cross shows us, it shows me how I need to love other people. That death is the ultimate sacrifice, and I need to sacrifice myself for others in that way. And I kind of gave a combination of a yes and, but then also a yes but. It is an example of how we can love other people. But I said, Daniel, do you, do you feel like you need the cross for yourself? And he said, well, no, because I don't sin. And I said, okay. You're free to believe whatever you want, but to join Liberty Collingswood, the understanding and the rationale of the Apostles' Creed as it reflects and embodies the totality of the scriptures is that we have a, a sin problem and we need Jesus to, to be forgiven. He's like, yeah, I don't believe that. And so where things stood, and Daniel wasn't thrilled by that conversation, but it, it was friendly, it was respectful, and he agreed. He said, okay, well, if that's what I need to do to join, that's not where I am. So, so, so there was at least good clarity and mutual agreement there. And he stayed a part of our church. And I would pray for him periodically, Lord, as he continues to be in our midst, come to our home meetings, come to church. Father, would, would he come to a deeper conviction of the historic Christian faith? He died in the process. Now fast forward. There was a West Philly 
minister's ministerium, so a group of pastors that met every once in a while. And I was telling the story of Daniel with mostly gratitude to some of the other pastors, but I did mention some sadness and regret that, as far as I know, uh, he never closed the deal with Jesus. I, I hope and pray that he did, but last I checked in with him about it, he didn't. And I said, so we did the funeral, very happy to do it. My wife Emily was the church organist for that funeral. That, that, that was an interesting detail as well. But I said, yeah, but, if, but he never ended up joining, and as far as I know, didn't make a Christian confession. After that meeting, there, there was an older pastor that took me aside. She was in a different Protestant denomination, and she said, Jim, it really didn't sit right with me when you were saying that, that, that Daniel wasn't, didn't join your church. And she said, isn't the whole point of the Christian gospel inclusion? And I thought about that, and I, I respected this pastor, and I, I took all of her com my conversations with her seriously. I, I thought about it, and I replied, yeah, that's a big deal. That's a gospel value. But so is reconciliation for sin. When Jesus reconciled us by faith back to the Father because of our sin issue. And I, I did like this pastor a lot. I, I got a little bit of a vibe at that point where I was being patted on the head. Uh, Jim, love your youthful enthusiasm, but as you get older, you're going to mellow out and find that that's not really a big deal. Inclusion is really the chief primary value here. And I mentioned to her at the time, and I still go back to a verse like Paul says to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. And as I interpret this verse then and now, I understand it to mean that unless we believe in Jesus and take his forgiveness upon ourselves for reconciliation with God the Father, otherwise we are in a state of non-reconciliation with him. We are unreconciled to God. And that implicit, I think, inference from 2 Corinthians 5 is all over the place in scripture and other places. Now granted, that's a giant claim whether 2,000 years ago or in 2023, whether 20-something Jim or 40-something Jim, it's a giant claim. Outside of Jesus, we are unreconciled to the Father, but is it untrue? And this is what I want us to consider here this morning, whether you're worshiping here in the room or worshiping online. Irreducibly, as I understand it, the cross of Jesus Christ, full of grace and mercy and life and forgiveness, yes, 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 likewise says there is something wrong with you and with me. We can't get around that line. I think part of the modern conversation about the church is, is Christianity healthy for people or not? And there's also the idea that, hey, if there's a religion that includes concepts of sin and judgment, doesn't that, doesn't that make us, as Christians, judgmental people? Just mean. That's where we're going to go and wrestle with this morning. 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ truly good news? So three parts from here. I want to talk about in Jesus how our creator is our redeemer. Then I want to talk about how Jesus is our creator and our redeemer by way of reconciliation, second part, and then also why it's good. So creator's redeemer, reconciliation, and then why it's good. So Scott Flobin preached to us last week from the Psalter. We're back continuing through Colossians chapter 1 here. And in this section of Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17 that I dealt with two weeks ago, that relates Jesus to creation. Paul says all over the letter to the Colossians, Jesus is absolutely everything. He's preeminent in all things. And then in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, Jesus is preeminent in creation. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul says, the firstborn of all creation. And now in Colossians 1, 18 to 20, Paul brings that forward and relates Jesus not only to creation, but also to redemption. And there's a key word that's repeated here to link the two together. So also in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, we see that word firstborn again. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So... Jesus, the Son, is the firstborn over all of creation. And that passage says he's the creator himself. But then here, he's the firstborn, the beginning from the dead. The church around the world and throughout the ages confesses that in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, we see a preview of the coming attraction of the Lord God recreating the heavens and earth completely a global cosmic renewal of resurrection life and justice and health and peace and love is coming. And Jesus is the firstborn. But he's not the only born. Because also in Jesus crucified and resurrected, he has tons of brothers and sisters throughout the ages, namely those that name the name of Jesus. And so the church of Jesus Christ, as we are organically connected to Jesus, our head, Together, we are this preview people, this new creation, previewing the world to come. And here's where it gets interesting, connecting these two parts of Colossians chapter 1. You can think of it this way. Redemption in Jesus. Redemption fills creation's frame. Redemption fills creation's frame. And you can think of the portrait, the grand painting of the redeemed, the forgiven in Jesus Christ, the framing around that beautiful picture is creation itself. And so to get back to the question, is the gospel of Jesus good for people? Is it healthy? Do we need this right now in our cultural moment? The church has confessed again throughout the ages that as you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are being redeemed and recreated into everything that you were originally created to be. That God's creational intentions are being rediscovered and reformed and refined in the renovation of Jesus Christ. And I understand the skeptical thought here for sure. But according to the confession of the church, anything that pulls us away from Jesus goes against not only Jesus' redemptive horizon for us, but then also God's whole creation plan for human beings and all things. And this is a point of pondering for us as people that live here in the late modern West. What is life all about for human beings? Let's give it these two doors. Is it 
be you or be God's? That's a basic choice. Be you or be God's? Those are two different doors. And if the cultural magnetism or gravity is to be you, this is what I'd want to say at this point. If you look at the world, around the world again and throughout the ages, how that would be answered, be you, is answered in radically different ways. Around the world today and throughout the eras, the epochs of the world, global north, global south, global east, and global west, be you, it's a two-part thing. Number one, a lot of people around the world throughout the ages have said that's actually not, as imp not super important. There are other things that human beings should do besides that. And then secondly, okay, if we're going to talk about me being me. There are lots of different knobs, volume levels on what it means to be a human being. Every different culture turns up some and not others. And so right now in the late modern West in 2023, if it's A, the point of being a human being is to be me, and then secondly, this is how I'm going to define it, I would put it this way. You are placing a massive bet that this knife's edge of the present moment is correct for all time. How sure are we that the BU of 2023 really is the marrow and the crux of what it means to be a human being? And as I try to stretch myself out and think of the church that's interacted with a lot of different cultures throughout the ages, the whole idea, which I understand the gravity there, and there's a lot of good things about me being me. So it's not just a totally bad thing, but if that's the end-all be-all and saying, I'm putting all of my chips into this corner, that sounds to me a little bit like Tobias Fionke in the original three-season arc of Arrested Development, where he's a marriage counselor with a failed mar failing slash failed marriage. And he's trying to figure out how to help himself and his wife and his marriage. And he says, well, let's do this. And he says, for just about every married couple, this is horrible advice. But for us, it just might work. The whole idea of, okay, I'm going to be here. This is what I'm going to found my life upon. Be you in 2023. Feels a little Fionke-esque to me, where I wonder if it's short-sighted. Do we really want to bet on the present in this way or stand in the larger stream of God's church for all time? But also thinking about Jesus, our creator and our redeemer. Have you ever felt there's must, there must be more? I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I was in Liberty Youth before that, talking about how universal to the human person, again, not just late modern West, but including now, I would treat as a symptom of this when people say I'm not religious but spiritual. That speaks to me of the creation horizon where whether our days and minds are filled with pictures and computer screens or oceans and mountains and stars, either way, we will think to ourselves, there is more to reality than the, just this. Can I relate to something above all of this morass? Is there a creator? And the good news, the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to construct our way to God. 
and build that tower of Babel. Instead, we receive. And Jesus comes down. Because in him, as Paul says here, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And as we trace through the arc of the scriptures from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament into the New, one of the driving questions you could say of the Old Testament is when will it be fulfilled when the dwelling of God is with human beings? And at different stages, God's glory, his fullness, his love and presence in the exodus of God's ancient people, the Israelites, you have the pillar of cloud and you have the pillar of fire. Then you have the presence, the fullness, the love of God filling the tabernacle that travels with the Israelites and then the temple that Solomon builds. And now finally, for all time, Jesus, God the Son, the Word of God was made flesh, as John says in the introduction to his letter, and dwelt among us and is with us. We don't have to build up because Jesus came down. And Paul in other places talks about how the fullness, the mercy, the love, the presence of God, it's not just in Jesus, although he's the embodiment by his nature. By grace, it's shared with followers of Jesus. That love, mercy, fullness, presence of God is shared spiritually in places like this. So our creator, Jesus, is our redeemer and is ours through reconciliation. When I was talking to this other pastor in West Philly years ago, if I could put what she was saying as I understood it into a spiritual framework, it's as if we only have Colossians 1.19 and not also Colossians 1.20. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Restoration is for us as we receive it by faith, but it comes by a bloody highway, irreducibly, through Jesus crucified and resurrected because of sin. All of creation, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, is, is struggling, is groaning, as in bondage to decay, awaiting the liberation of the sons, the sons and daughters of the living God, waiting for the new heavens and new earth to come. That's what's coming. And there's a cosmic redemption, but then also individually as we are reconciled back to God. And so as I read Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross, if there are no sins, the cross makes no sense. If there are no sins, it seems like, why do you have to do that? Jim, really... I'm thankful for you. I got, I got a Big Mac value meal for you because I'm so thankful for you. I'd, I'd be grateful for that. I like a Big Mac as much as the next guy. Jim, I paid a million dollars for it. I'd say, thanks for the Big Mac. You may have overpaid. You didn't have to go through all that trouble. The cross doesn't make sense without sin. That's why Jesus had to die. But doesn't that account for what's wrong with us? Ben Franklin, a frustrated Philadelphia 76ers fan, like, like all of us are, who was not a Christian in the, throughout his life, I think, but in the early stage of the founding of this country, one of our founding fathers, and a frustrated Philadelphia 76ers fan. Sixers were big turkeys, according to Ben Franklin. <coughs> he had his 
thumb on the pulse when it came to what's wrong with people, but then on the other hand said, well, sin's not a thing. Our reflection quote comes from Ben Franklin. This is what he said about us. He said, basically, human beings are awesome all the time. No. He said, men tend to be a sort of beings very badly constructed, as they are generally more easily provoked than reconciled, more disposed to do mischief to each other than to make reparation, and more easily deceived than undeceived. That sounds right to me, but then Franklin will turn around and say, ah, we need to get rid of this sin concept. And that's where I find the fly in the ointment. What do we do with this mess? And those sorts of conversations continue into the 21st century. And there are tensions, as I see it, in the contemporary church landscape as well, going back to that conversation that I had in West Philly. So what should churches do? Should churches be about reconciliation or inclusion, to put it that way? And I would say both are important. Both are biblical values. You can find a ton of Bible behind both. But at least as I see it, and I've talked to people that land in different places than I do, but those people, at least when I've talked to them, agree with me that this is kind of the way to think about it. Reconciliation and inclusion cannot be equally ultimate. They cannot be equally primary. One has to trump the other as we think about the Church of Jesus Christ. And I think there's problems and dangers with both. So if inclusion trumps reconciliation, I see a biblical problem there. If reconciliation trumps inclusion, I see a practical problem. And let me talk a little bit about both. All we need to do is include. Biblically speaking, we lose sin and what's wrong. I want to ask in this case, well then what's the cross for? And isn't it the case that creation needs redemption? When Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again, when Jesus comes again and creates the new heavens and new earth, it's not just going to be a new coat of paint over all of the mess of our world. That wouldn't be truly making things new. Instead, all that would be would be literally just a coat of paint on things when all the mess is still there, unaccounted for, unreckoned with, unreconciled. And there's a ton of Bible in that direction. It's always challenging, not just now. I think about Jesus in the middle of his ministry. We go into John's Gospel. Jesus is preaching about the centrality of himself. Lots of people leave. They say this is hard. So there's historical precedent. But then also, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you leaving too? But what do the disciples say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so to me, a Christian gospel that doesn't have as key, a keystone, I hear there's a state beside us that has something to do with the keystone. I've never been there. A Christian gospel without reconciliation as the keystone to be articulated in that way is pastoral malpractice. And so either in talking with this older pastor, I still have that youthful enthusiasm, and or that's just what the Bible says. And for me in that conversation with Daniel, saying I don't believe that Jesus was God, I'm never going to worship him, I don't need the cross because I don't sin. For me to say, that's good enough for me. Welcome. 
I would have not been loving to him in those moments, right? It would have been an unloving thing to do for me to say, come on now, without giving some challenge. And if your inclination is to go in this direction, thank you for being among us. Thank you for being with us. There are biblical values and verses that talk about, hey, we need to be including everybody. That is a biblical value. And so for the reconciling folks, the practical problem here, and this includes me, I need to be careful that I actually lose a welcome. When I can pre-sort, okay, you need to come to church, but I'm not going to invite you. Let's just focus over here. Refusing to let the gospel work in everybody's lives, the whole pre-sort thing. And so for inclusion primary, what's the cross for? is the question. For reconciliation primary, who is the cross for? And the answer is everybody, not just some. The cross is the great equalizer in the sense that nothing is off limits. And to make some generalizations here, if you're a progressively minded person, that means sexuality is on the table. If you're a conservatively-minded person, that means nationality is on the table. Or whatever else needs to be on the table for you, it needs to be everything. And we are so intent on finding what's ours, and even though we're not admitting it, telling God, hand off. But to me, this is the beauty of the gospel that truly makes Jesus different than all of the brand X's, Y's, and Z's where there's genuinely an opt-out opportunity of cultural messes that we're in, when we can truly be freed to be people who love Jesus and for the common good at the same time. W.H. Auden, a 20th century poet, a little bit of a longer quote, but I feel like you're listening, so I'll say it. In the 1940s, Auden, for a number of years, would put out uh, Christmas encyclical, kind of Auden and the Pope would put out a Christmas missive every year. And this is what he wrote one year. What Herod, going back to the nativity story, realizes is that this child and the message he brings of universal forgiveness and reconciliation with God do not offer a rival source of power and order, but a radical alternative to what the classical world understands as power and order. They do not seek to replace him on the throne of his kingdom, but to usher in a wholly new kingdom, not providing, quote, spiritual benzodrine for the earthly city. I think that's a downer. I forgot to look that up, right? Like a sleeping pill? Downer. But replacing that city with a new one. The city of man passes away. The city of God abides forever. This child marks the end of the machine. Mid-20th century here, the end of the military-industrial complex. The end of force. We talk occasionally here about a third-way walk in worldview where we're not pulled to the poles of tribalizations that are going on right now. To me, odd mid-20th century captures that. We're not on this side of the use of force against other people or on this side against the use of force because Jesus' kingdom is fundamentally different. Why it's good, and then we'll wrap up. We can be at the same time radically hopeful and radically humbled radically hopeful without being triumphalistic and radically humble without being fatalistic. Radically hopeful for the world because Jesus is going to make all things new. 
I've been talking to a lot of you that have had anxiety about what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And here's a little bit of hashtag real talk from pastors. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but I'll, I'll give you a little. Sometimes I have political opinions that I feel so biblically convicted about and say, yeah, this is not just Christians can disagree and you can find Bible to go in different directions. Sometimes I th this is sufficiently big print that from the pulpit this needs to go out. Other times it's, I have my own private political opinions about things. I don't see such scriptural mandate that I need to put all of that on you, so I don't talk about it. Other times I don't talk about political stuff because this guy has no idea. I would put Gaza and Israel in that third category. Okay? When it is such a messy, complicated situation over a ton of centuries, that for me to give you a simplistic, here is the answer, Here's the side that's right. Here's the side that's wrong. That also would be pastoral malpractice to you, I think. But we don't just leave it with, well, that's really hard. And we're going to be really anxious and really sad, although we are. This is where something like the Apostles' Creed that we confess every Sunday at Liberty Collingswood makes a huge difference. Because we confess that there's going to be a new heavens, a new earth, a resurrection of the body, so this world is not just going to burn, and God is going to judge the living and the dead. So there is a sense in which we're not going to be able to work out, and maybe we can and should, I don't know, I said I'm not sure, what true justice looks like in Israel and Gaza right now, at least for my own part, I don't know, but I trust that God's going to sort that out and that he's going to make all things new. So that gives us a hope beyond the headlines that's real and deep and enduring and lasting. But then also radically humble, because the cross tells us it's not only stuff that's wrong out there, there's stuff that's wrong in here. And if we're in this weird cultural moment where we can get, I think, conflicting signals, where you're told nothing's your fault, but you're told it's all everybody else's fault, but think about how that can be a conflict. It's not your fault. It's everybody else's fault. Then you say to the person next to the person, it's not your fault. It's everybody else's fault. Then you say to the other person, it's not your fault. It's everybody else's fault. And some of the way of understanding that is, well, there's systemic stuff and individual stuff. That, that, is that, that gets part of the way there, and there are some systemic things for sure. But we have this allergy at the same time to owning anything which doesn't help us to be healthy, whole people if we own so little. But the cross says there's something wrong with everybody, including you, not just everybody else. And the wrong can be filled in in different ways. And it's not for me ultimately to you know, fill in 100% of your wrong and you for 100% of my wrongs in my heart. But at the same time, saying I'm not better than anybody, all of my junk is on the table, before God, just like everybody else's, and I have nothing to defend. As we remember, like we, sing, like we sang in the song Rejoice, making reconciliation to a world that longs to know, that's what Jesus does. When we think again about what makes good and healthy people, the historic Christian answer is you need to feel the weight of sin to experience fullness of joy. You need to feel the weight of your sin to experience fullness of joy. 
And to me, the modern story, if weight of sin is here and fullness of joy is here, we just bring both of those down to this grace-squishy middle. When, yeah, you could be better, but not that bad. So the weight of sin is released. But then what are we given as far as joy? I think less. True humanity, feel that weight, but then also experience the joy. Not every modern hymnal includes a verse for man of sorrows. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. That's the full weight. But then full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. And this is it. There is space within a reconciling model to be people of true reconciliation and peace in the world. To strive for it, to suffer for it, to die for it. In Ephesians chapter 2, another place where Paul talks about how we are reconciled back to God, he goes on to talk about the two main categories of his thought world, Jew and Gentile. They are reconciled into one person by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is speaking to a church context that is dividing along ethnic lines. And Paul is saying, that's not what the cross does. If you're, horizontal, if you're vertically reconciled to God, you need to be reconciled to one another. And so we have not only the impulse, but the mandate from Jesus, the reconciling God, to go and do that. One ancient voice, one modern voice or Middle Ages voice, Martin Luther, be a reconciler and mediator between your neighbors. Carry the best to both sides, but keep quiet about the bad, which the devil has inspired. Or explain it the best way you can. Be a reconciler. Or Scott Flovin last week talked about a book called Weep With Me, thinking about rec racial reconciliation in and through the church. Wrote this recently. There is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some work to do. And that's right. In the name of the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Yeah. The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.